Welcome to the Vitality Radio Podcast, your source for the truth about health, wellness, and real alternatives to drugs, surgeries, and the status quo of healthcare. Here, you'll find information that empowers you to take control of your health. But it's not just about health and wellness, it's about the politics of healthcare and protecting your health freedom. Now, here's your host, Jared St. Clair. Hello and welcome to Vitality Radio. I'm your host each and every week. My name is Jared St. Clair and I am extra excited today because just about, oh, I don't know, maybe it's been a month, month and a half ago, I had this gentleman on and I will say in 16 years of doing Vitality Radio, it was one of the most interesting and mind-blowing conversations that I've been privileged to have. I really loved digging into this topic. We're talking about mitochondria. We're talking about the mitochondria function, what they do, uh, and how to tell if you are dealing with dysfunction in that area and what to do about it. Now, last time I had Dr. Morell on the show, and I'm going to introduce him to you again in just a moment, but last time I had him on was episode 379. And I will say, if you're listening to this, and you didn't listen to that yet, go back and listen to that one first, because this is very much a part two. I dissected that interview. I've listened to it a couple of times, which I rarely go back and listen to my own show, but I dissected it because it was so fascinating to me that I wanted to make sure that you got a really great uh, part two, uh, because at the very end of that show, we talked about how we could easily go another couple hours. Well, we only have one, but we're going to do a great hour for you here. So, I'm not going to uh, give you all the background on Dr. Morello because you're going to listen to episode 379 first, so you know who he's or what he's about and and what his experience is. But I do want to welcome him back to the show, Dr. Gatano Morello. Thank you for coming back to Vitality Radio. Well, I'm glad to be back. Uh, <laughs> we did leave a lot on the table on the last uh, discussion we had, so it's, it's it's just such a huge topic. You're, you're correct. Uh, there's no way we can cover it all. Uh, it's, uh, but it's, uh, it's just uh, really fascinating just to keep dwelling into the mitochondria and what they are. You know, <laughs> as I, my patients, I was telling them, you know, you, you remember mitochondria in uh, biology class in, in high school, you know, two little organelles in one cell and there's like you know there's a thousand of them in the cell so <laughs> that's all we knew the the energy factories but there's so much more to them um, absolutely so. way more than we have time for really and and that and that's okay because we're going to dig into as much as we can and i've got a game plan here in terms of how i want to sure. discuss this so that we can try to get as much uh vital information to our listeners as we can so First off, I want to preface all this by just saying, you know, in the nutraceutical world, uh, you know, the so-called alternative medicine, where we're looking at more of a holistic approach, we often talk about the um, difference between root cause versus symptom relief and how we approach, you know, natural wellness from more of a root cause standpoint. And we talk about root causes for things like autoimmune disease, cancer, neurological dysfunction, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cognitive decline, and so on and so on and so on. But my question I have for you, and I think I might already know your answer, is as are we jumping the gun looking at root causes for those things if we aren't starting by looking at the mitochondria in the first place? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, if you, again, you know, if we go and just go simple, simple as possible if every cell in the body every type of cell is a factory muscle cells are factory that create extension and contraction and all those factories require energy or electricity to function if that electricity isn't efficient they're not going to function normally so could that cause all sorts of different issues maladies uh, yeah yes so could that be the start point yes uh, I, I, absolutely so yeah that 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 is the start point in in, so in my view yeah and i and i think you're right and the more i've i've dug into this and i really have spent quite a bit of time looking at mitochondria in more depth since we talked uh, because it is a topic that i recognize i haven't spent nearly enough time educating myself on i feel like I knew the basics. Uh, you opened me up to a bunch of things that I had not thought of before last time we talked and I wanted to go deeper. So that's what I've been doing over the last several weeks since we talked. 
But the first question I have then for someone listening and, you know, they've, they've listened to the first episode, they kind of understand what mitochondria do um, and, you know, what um, what we can do even to support that function. But what's the first question that you would ask people or what are some questions maybe that you would ask people to ask themselves to determine if they are indeed in need of mitochondrial support, if they're struggling in that area? Well, you know, one of the easiest questions to ask, and if you think about this, one of the chief complaints of the general population is fatigue. Um, Everybody's tired, number one. You know, the majority of the population, uh, that's why we have such a great, you know, the coffee business is, is, is so big <laughs> because Indeed. everybody's trying, I need a coffee, I need a coffee, I need a coffee, right? Because uh-huh, uh-huh. they're, they're trying to get a bolster of energy. Um, and if you look at what are big selling items in the grocery world, energy drinks, nonstop. Yeah, you know, I think Red Bull does seven billion globally. Uh, all these monster, all these drinks—they're all about energy. So the first thing you would ask is that. The second one that may not be so obvious is sleep, because me—I I deal with these complex diseases here at, uh, at the hospital, and these complex diseases like chronic fatigue so you know obviously chronic fatigue that's that's real fatigue serious fatigue one of the common symptoms that they all have is they can't sleep and you think uh, you think about it when you're really really tired this is when you think you're going to sleep well but they don't because sleep requires energy uh, we never think of it that way why because every cell type in the body is a factory that produces something. And there's cells that produce compounds to help you sleep, like serotonin. That compound, the feel-good hormone, is produced in cells. And it's produced in those cells because those cells need electricity to produce it. So those are two symptoms I would start with uh right off the bat those are the simple ones right like easy easy peasy sure but but i love that you said you know the second one is far less obvious because you think well i can't sleep that's not because i don't have enough energy right i don't have enough energy because i can't sleep so there's kind of a chicken and the egg thing there but with poor sleep comes more fatigue with more fatigue i guess then comes more poor sleep in many cases because of that mitochondrial dysfunction Catch-22. Yeah. yeah, One feeds the other and so forth and so on. But you would never think or, you know, I I wouldn't think that sleep needs energy, right? Because you're you're out of energy. That's where you go sleep. But it needs energy. So all these patients that have mitochondrial dysfunction, they all can't sleep. So they sleep. And let let me rephrase that. They can't get their sleep is unrefreshing. Yes. It's it's like they're in bed for 10 hours, 8 hours, but they don't feel like they've slept. They wake up and they can, you know, it just it's it just because they're not getting that deep sleep. Mm-hmm. And so it's really really important. And how many people aren't getting proper sleep? I mean, I, I can guarantee you you talk to people and they tell you that they have sleep issues. Uh, they feel very, very tired and they feel like they need to sleep another 10 hours and they've slept eight hours and they don't feel like they've slept at all. Uh, and that's the general population. Well, absolutely. And, you know, you said that you talked about coffee and monsters and Red Bulls and all this stuff. And, and clearly, you know, caffeine consumption is at some level of epidemic proportion right now. But I would yeah. say also lack of sleep or lack of quality sleep is in that exact same boat. People aren't either... And, and this is a, a thing that I like to very much um, uh, point out to people. There are people that can sleep well that don't allow themselves to enough time to sleep. So that's one thing that uh, we're missing out on as well. But then there are people who really try to get enough sleep and just don't get it or don't get good sleep, like you mentioned. So let's talk about some of the things that because you deal with complex 
uh, disease and illness. You know, that's your daily thing there at the hospital. So you mentioned chronic fatigue, but we have all kinds of other autoimmune conditions. Would you say that there is such a thing as an autoimmune condition that doesn't also have a significant mitochondrial uh, component to it? I think they all do. Okay. <laughs> you know, from, from my observation, uh, there's because that's what gets impacted, right? Uh, th think about this. You get the flu. Does the flu have mitochondrial? It impacts the mitochondria. Uh, how do I how do I know that? Well, because when you have the flu, what do you feel? You feel tired. You feel achy bones. Hmm. Uh, and, and why do you feel that? And that's and that's and there's an autoimmune reaction there. I, I, absolutely, there's 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 immunity going on, right. and I mean. And how's that immunity going on? Well, there's these this translocation across that darn cell membrane, or or that epithelial lining in the gut. Remember, what separates everything inside your gut from entering your bloodstream is one cell. Think about mm -hmm. that: one cell, a microscopic entity, is all that stands between life and death. Because if that barrier opens up too much, and you have mounds of bacteria that come into the blood, you can die from septicemia. So it's a paradox that one cell lining has to be strong enough to block these things from getting inside the blood, at the same time has to be permeable enough to allow nutrients to get inside the blood. And if you turn those cells over and you look at what's in between those cells, there's over 100 proteins holding those cells together. It's a very intricate network. And how are those proteins, how do they function? They function with energy and they need electricity to function. And when they don't have that electricity, we get massive issues. And the example I often give, and I've shared this with my patients, I've asked them the question over and over and over again for many, many years. So the question is, when your stress levels are higher than normal, mm -hmm. do your symptoms get worse? 12,000 times I've asked that question. <laughs> Think about that 12,000 <laughs> times I've counted. Because <laughs> I've asked every patient that. And every right. patient has said, yes. Fatigue gets worse. Post-exertion malice gets worse. Cognitive function, brain fog, and memory loss get worse. IBS gets worse. Sleep gets worse. Pain gets worse. They all get worse. Why? Why does stress or increases in the stress level make everything worse? Because... When you're under stress, when the zebra confronts the lion, the zebra is going to want to ray from the lion. So what does it do? It pulls blood away from the core, from the gut, pushing that blood to the peripheral tissues so the zebra can run faster. And when these cells lose that blood volume, there's less oxygen going to those cells. And what does the mitochondria require to produce electricity? Their number one requirement is oxygen. Mm -hmm. So when the oxygen is less, and we've measured this, and those cells open up, you get increased gut permeability, you get this leaky gut thing happening. And then you get the translocation of compounds inside the bloodstream, which shouldn't be there. And then they're going to attack these things, these white blood cells we call macrophages. And on these white blood cells, there's all these receptors. We call them toll-like toll receptors. And they start attaching those receptors, and those receptors start sending signals to all sorts of different things in the body. Uh, we call it interleukin-6 is one of them. And that activates a chain reaction of things that go from the liver to the bones, et cetera, et cetera, all down the list. And this is why you can get, you can have achy bones, muscle fatigue, body fatigue, cognitive dysfunction when you get a flu, because mm -hmm. these things can occur. So <laughs> like you said, there's so much to talk about. Where do we start? And that's that's just a simple example of just a stress response and what that can create. And and think about how many times do you know you've heard or your listeners have heard, oh, you know, my my friend, he really got really sick because he was under a lot of stress. Mm -hmm. My friend got a, a stroke. He was under so much stress. Except how many times do we hear that? And there's actually reason for that. Uh, there is... I know we say it with words, but there's actually physiological meaning behind that. It's right. layered. 
Uh, yeah. do, do, do you know what I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm referencing? Absolutely. So then here's the question. If we're going back to this root cause thing, if, if you had to pick uh, a thing uh, that impacts mitochondria more than anything else, does it start with stress? Is that your opinion? Yeah, that's one of the biggest impactors. That's one that impacts okay. them because stress, because, okay, so if you think about does the environment impact your health? Well, one of the things I show in a lot of my presentations, I show a picture of two individuals. And this picture was taken from Discovery Magazine, 2006, November issue. I, I, re, I remember exactly where I, I pulled it from. And they had a picture of two guys. One guy was six foot one, large frame. And the other guy was five foot 11, medium frame. They had front views, back views, and side views of these two individuals. And they also had different diseases. What was interesting about those two individuals was that they were identical twins. Their DNA was exactly the same, yet they looked different. So what happened? They were separated at birth, and they grew up in two different environments. The foods are consumed, the stress levels they faced, the nurturing they received changed the behavior of their DNA. So the genotype is the DNA. The phenotype is the expression of that DNA. Mm -hmm. So the environment changed it. And what's one of the contributing factors of the environment is stress. <laughs> that's, a, that's an environmental contributing factor. And what does all this contribute to? Well, if you're gonna if you're gonna hit the gut, you're gonna contribute to the microbiome, which that there's another play mm -hmm. in play with the mitochondria. So you impact the microbiome, you can change a lot of things. Because think about the microbiome, 100 trillion. I mean, you have 22,000 genes. Well, the microbiome has over 3 million genes. And do those genes impact your own genes? I, I think the answer to that is yes. And there is a relationship between those bacteria and the mitochondria. Yeah, absolutely. So then it sounds like, and of course, when we talk about stress, we discussed this on the first episode, those stressors are, you know, wildly varied from person to person in terms of where they come from. There are some constant things that we can look at, uh, the stress of the environment itself, toxicity in the environment, uh, and those types of things. We can then look at, you know, the, the physical stress that we're put under, depending on, you know, what our level of physical uh, exertion is in a variety of different ways, whether that's exercise or other things. We can look at the stress that we put on ourselves, uh, you know, mental, emotional uh, issues that we deal with. Uh, and then, as you said, other environmental things in terms of the, the way that we're nurtured uh, as children and how we grow up and the relationships that we form, whether that be at work or at home. Uh, and so, many other aspects. So stress is this really wide-ranging thing. But it would sound to me then, if I was thinking about this in, in a, I guess I would say a little more shallow way, that we're all kind of screwed, Doc, because it's like, well, we're all <laughs> under stress, so what the heck do we do about it, right? <laughs> but but that's not really true. We do have things we can do, right? Yeah, there, there there's things we can do 100%. 100%. So, 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 so think about that. Uh, and, and so first thing is to observe, right? So some people have different sensitivities to stress. So for example, a speeding car might stress one person and a speeding car might not have any stress on another person. So interpretation of stress is one component. Yeah. Another component is centralization, which is really interesting. And what is centralization? So centralization is a really interesting topic, and it falls in the, in the fibromyalgia category. So let's look at that, for example, and then we'll look at how can you, can you create adaptation or reduction in the interpretation of stress, which will downregulate the sympathetic response. So centralization is interesting. So let's look at pain, and then we'll expand from the pain. The pain will be the first example. So fibromyalgic pain is interesting because it doesn't respond to painkillers. So if you take a, if you have fibromyalgia and you take an ANSAID, it ain't going to help. 
Right. If you take an opiate, you can have, why? Because there's different types of pains. The first pain that we're all very familiar with is called nociceptive pain. That's the pain where you fracture a bone, you get a laceration, you have surgery. That That's nociceptive pain, which can be symptomatically reduced with painkillers or even opiates. Mm-hmm. This centralized pain doesn't work that way. It's an actual amplification of a signal. So the signal is amplified and the interpretation is increased dramatically. So for example, I often give the example of my pen. If I put my pen on my hand, my sensory cells will tell me that that pen weighs less than an ounce. But if I have centralization, my brain can interpret this pen as weighing 15 pounds. Hmm. That's a completely different interpretation. Why? Because the volume has been cranked up and I'm interpreting it in a different facet. A 40 watt light bulb in centralization, you could interpret that as a thousand watts. So you become very sensitive to light. Hmm. You can become very sensitive to sound and you can be very sensitive to stressors. So, something that you might think, well, that doesn't bother me at all, could really bother a patient that has a centralization. And what causes centralization? (laughs) Here we go. What causes that sensory cell to dysfunction is a lack of energy production within the sensory cell. So we have centralization with these complex chronic disease patients where if the electricity or the energy production, that sensory cell is, because what do sensory cells, they're, they're factories. What do they produce? They produce information to the brain about what they interpret. They can interpret heat, cold, pain, all sorts of things. And so if the energy in those cells or the electricity production in those cells isn't optimal, they can misinterpret the signals. That's what happens. So that's essentially, that's a, that's a whole, whole another world in this arena, again, linked to mitochondrial dysfunction. Well, and that's fascinating because I actually, over the last couple of years, have become uh, in contact with uh, hundreds of people that are experiencing those types of um, those types of stressors on the body where everything is amplified um, with what happened with the, you know, over the last few years, we had that we have the long COVID people. We have people who were uh, vaccinated for COVID who've been injured by those vaccines. I've met a lot of those people and there's a lot of that going on. And one of the big concerns and, and one of the things that really you brought to my attention, probably for the first time, as I've been kind of racking my brain on how to help people with things that are so out of line with what is normal, I guess, in terms of that, like like you said, the amplification of the signals that they're dealing with. And it just makes perfect sense to me that we have to go back to mitochondria there too and figure out how to balance that out. So we have all of these different potential issues. Some of the most simple ones you mentioned were, you know, uh, sleep and energy, but then we have the more complex things like you deal with uh, in your practice there. And we have, you know, all types of different neurological dysfunctions. I do have a question with the neuro- neurological things. It sounds like to me anyway, you know, in your pen analogy is a great example where you put a pen on your hand and it weighs, you know, an ounce or whatever it is, but it feels like it weighs multiple pounds. That sounds like a neurological disorder, like the nerves are reading the signal uh, or amplifying the signal dramatically. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. So it's okay. uh, absolutely. So it has an impact just like Parkinson's and these other conditions, same kind of same kind of thing. So with neuropathy then that people are dealing with, whether it be diabetic neuropathy or neuropathy brought on by another cause, uh, would that also fall into that same centralization? No, it's no. a it's a different it's a different. Th- okay, so how does that work? It, it, yeah, that's and so that's a pain that we didn't <laughs> we didn't mention. <laughs> that's neuropathic pain, neurological okay. pain, which it does respond to tricyclic antidepressants and painkillers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so so when you're talking about diabetic uh, peripheral neuropathies and these things, that's more caused by glycation. So glycation. Okay. So the, the, the problem with sugar, and, you know, we, we have diabetes, you know, type 2 is, is rampant right now. Uh, and, and this is an elevation in blood sugar levels. Uh, so, so what that does, what's so bad about sugar staying in the blood? Well, because 
the cells aren't responsive to insulin, so you become insulin insensitive, that sugar rises in the bloodstream. And what is sugar? Sugar is a glue. It sticks things together. So what occurs, so if you, you know, if you drink a can of pop and you pick it up the next day, it's sticky. Think mm-hmm. about that in the bloodstream. It starts to stick to cells and creates dysfunction within the cells and the ability of those cells to communicate and eventually impacts the DNA of that cell and the mitochondria. And that's how you get problems. So it is different uh, because it more it has more to do with that circulatory effect and so it has but it'll it'll have eventually it will get to that centralization stage but the, the beginning stages aren't that the beginning stations are due to this glycation of, of these nerves where they can't they can't respond properly and you get all sorts of symptomology you know you get the tingling the pins and needles and that kind of stuff and then this is why you know you take some b vitamins sometimes it helps uh, you know you reduce your sugar levels and it helps and all that kind of stuff right so it's it's a little not you can you can bring it to a level where there's no coming back because you've damaged the nerve, and that's 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 a possibility. But that's that, it is a, it is a different uh, different play. Okay, but in in either way in either case though, uh, enhancing mitochondrial function would still then uh, benefit someone with, who's dealing with neuropathy as well. Though, yep, yep, you'll you'll benefit. You improve energy function in cells. You're going to improve everything. You're going to improve aging. You're, you'll, you'll, you won't age as quickly. You'll, you'll, you'll live longer. I mean, there's no doubt about it. These things, because the mitochondria, you know, think about it, they have their own DNA. <laughs> Bizarre. They carry their own DNA. Uh, isn't that interesting that they carry their own DNA? And what we're Absolutely. learning about them, and like as, as I said in the last presentation, both mitochondria and the microbiome are inherited from our mothers, not our fathers. Mm-hmm. And what we have begun to learn, and this is kind of innately, I had the feeling, and I'm sure other, you know, people in science, doctors, scientists, they've had similar inklings, people really involved in the microbiome had had similar that there, there's got to be some attachment or some relationship between the bacteria of the gut and the mitochondria. Because we know when the microbiome is off, a lot of things are off. For example, you mentioned long COVID. And long COVID, we definitely know that the microbiome is off. It changes. Yeah. And they have all the symptoms of very similar symptoms of these patients we see with chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia and myalgic encephalomyelitis, very similar. And so is it that? And so what 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 we have what we have what we have uh, what we have learned now or learning now, what we are learning now is the fact that there is communication between the mitochondria and the microbiome. The microbiome is sending signals communicating with the mitochondria. It was really fascinating. Uh, Dr. Minerbi out of uh, Israel and McGill University out of Montreal, what he did was he's been studying this for a while. And this is the this is the, the doc that took, and you probably heard about this one, where he took genetically obese rats and he took their microbiomes and then he yeah. and uh, he took that gave that microbiome to uh, you know germ-free rats, rats that didn't have a microbiome, and all those rats became obese. Uh, this is the same same individual. Mm-hmm. And so what he did was he's, he analyzed uh, analyzed the microbiomes of these fibromyalgic patients. And I don't know if I told you this in the last one, but this was a really interesting study. So what he did was he took healthy subjects, he took their microbiomes in anaerobic conditions, no oxygen, because if if Bacteria of the gut are exposed to oxygen, they die. So he took them, he isolated them, and then he encapsulated them. And he encapsulated them, and then he fed them to over 150 fibromyalgic patients. And he followed those patients over six months, and he saw dramatic improvements in the symptomology of these patients. 
I'm talking about fatigue, post-exertion malaise, pain, sleep, cognitive dysfunction, all those parameters improved. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> this is unbelievable. Yeah. It, it really, I, I was taken aback by the fact that, you know, the way he did this study. And so, you know, I, and this was at the fibromyalgia conference in, in Vienna, just this last March. I said, wait, I go, this is unbelievable. Uh, uh, he goes, I'm going to wait another six months. We're going to continue following these patients. We're going to publish the data. So that data should be published this next year, but I think it's, it's incredible. So what happened there? You know, why, how did these symptoms improve? So there must've been the normalization of the microbiome or the infiltration of these good, you know, you know, mass amounts of bacteria from a healthy subject that are different than probiotics change the communication between the microbiome and the mitochondria. I mean, what else could they have done? I mean, how these patients all of a sudden have more energy? Like, how's that possible? So the microbiome is playing a role in it. And so what we have to understand is the importance of this microbiome and the importance of the mitochondria and that there is a link. So, you know, we all often talk about the brain gut axis, but the mm -hmm. axis is really the mitochondria because that's, I think, that's what they communicate with. And, and they remember they came from the same source. There's a genetic link. It's interesting, right? So, um, really and, and that kind of gives you all these little things that give you clues. Right. And then we have to kind of come up with, okay, that, and then when we listen to these clues, then we have to, in our own minds, is, does, does that connect some dots for us? And, you know, in my, in my mind, it did. And, you know, I'd love to hear your opinion on that because I'm just presenting this to you. I don't know if, I don't think I shared this with you before. I don't, because I don't think it's been shared with anybody. <laughs> this is, this is, hasn't even been published yet. So, but it's fascinating, isn't it? It's incredible. Yeah. I can't wait to see it when it's published. That sounds just absolutely uh, wild because we know, you know, I mean, that's essentially he's doing a fecal transplant, right? Yeah. Um, and we know what fecal transplants can do for things like C. diff and a variety of other things. But we generally speaking, think about fecal transplants specifically to gut issues, right? Uh, you know, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis and, and those types of things. Not so much uh, these more uh, complex uh, issues like fibromyalgia, which, I mean, fibromyalgia has so many question marks surrounding it in terms of, you know, what the heck is it? Where does it come from? You know, why does it, why does it look like it looks right? And where some of these other illnesses and diseases are a lot more obvious, uh, what we're actually looking at that one, to me, at least as, as, you know, someone who doesn't practice with people with fibromyalgia on a regular basis, which I, it sounds like you do. It's always seemed like just this big mystery ailment. Uh, and, and so that to me seems like this amazing, um, uh, potential, I guess that has amazing potential to see if we can help some of these people that have really struggled with that for, you know, decades yeah. and decades. Yeah. Not, not only help them, but possibly help others. Uh, you know, you mentioned C. difficile, you know, we do it at the hospital, uh, fecal, and this is, you know, who wants to do a fecal transplant? It just sounds weird. <laughs> sure, but, yeah. But this is, this is, these are encapsulated ones, so you take them orally, which is very different. Um, so, so this could be, it could open up the doors to a whole bunch of different op opportunities, like you said. We'll have to wait and see. People think that's even more gross. Uh, I think when they think about it, a fecal transplant orally, right, in a pill form, mm -hmm. that sounds awful. But then I say, well, what do you think you're eating at McDonald's, right? It's not different. <laughs> it's just healthier. <laughs> We're putting crap in our mouths all yeah, day long, yeah. right? Well, yeah, okay. ab absolutely. <laughs> so let's talk about this. So we have a couple of things that I think we can really help people in terms of instructing them on, you know, uh, actual changes they can make to improve their micro or sorry, their mitochondria, which of course includes the microbiome, obviously. Um, from a lifestyle standpoint, we've discussed stress a lot. Um, I do a series of uh, podcasts called Emotional Vitality, where I help people with stress mitigation practices, everything from grounding to breath work to mindset things. And, and, and I would encourage anybody listening that wants to enhance their mitochondria, it seems to me that looking at stress is is ground zero for that for sure but what else would you say uh, you've uh, what do you instruct your patients to do what have you seen the best success with from a lifestyle standpoint if they want to improve mitochondrial function yeah you know i think you mentioned you know um, behavioral therapy is, is, is something that definitely can help uh reducing mm -hmm. uh 
the way you view stress, I mean, that, right. that can help. And something you mentioned that I mentioned to everybody is grounding. Uh, I think that's, yes. that's a big deal. Um, because as I said last on the last broadcast, you know, the mitochondria has a hundred lemons and those lemons get knocked off. And that's what creates the issue because it's got a balance. So it takes less oxygen and produces less electricity. But if you give it new lemons, it can function. And so grounding brings electrons into the body, uh, which is, <laughs> those are the lemons. All an antioxidant is, is an electron donor. The greatest electron donor we have is is the ground, is the earth. It, it produces electrons nonstop. That's what it gives it. So grounding, I think, from a lifestyle perspective, uh, is something to really, so I always tell my patients on the first, I go, your homework is to learn about grounding, <laughs> go read grounding. Okay. It's very scientific. Uh, so have a look at it because it sounds hokey pokey, but it's not, mm -hmm. uh, you'd be surprised. Even Nike put a patent on a shoe that grounds you. <laughs> so it's real. It's, this is the real deal. Yeah. Uh, so I think, I think, you know, you, uh, uh, discussing grounding would be, uh, what uh, from a lifestyle perspective and there's there's obviously supplements that i do recommend that i think mm -hmm. are hits things that work um i, I also recommend those as well but uh, th those are two lifestyle uh choices that, that can help uh, uh patients deal with uh with the stress from a diet standpoint it would seem to me that inflammatory foods would be one of the biggest impactors too because we're talking about leaky gut playing such a big role in this and inflammation in the gut uh creating issues is that something that is typically recommended uh by you for your patients that are struggling with this is well since you mentioned mcdonald's yes <laughs> <laughs> you know so one of the things i i, I kind of share with them is you know the the video supersized me which is really interesting yeah uh, I, I know it was one person but so okay so let me let me get this straight so here's a healthy guy comes in and he's put on mcdonald's lunch breakfast lunch and dinner and he's they measure before they started the experiment they measured all his blood work etc cetera, etc cetera. and then after two months they had to stop it because the guy was nearly dead so what right. the heck did the, what, what did the food do well here 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 it is your body gets remade all the time. It's turning over. And that means every cell is getting remade mm -hmm. with the exception of the nervous system. So they're all getting remade. And the outer core of those cells is the membrane, the cell membrane. And that cell membrane is made up of fats. Those fats have to be very, they have to be moving. They have to be not very stiff so they have to be right. very flexible because on that cell surface is all the receptors the switches that things turn things on and off inside the cell so the cell can do a whole bunch of different things mm -hmm. and what when you're taking when you're taking mcdonald's every day those saturated fats get incorporated into those cells so a lot of the cells that he had were remade with that saturated fat and he had rigidity in the cell membranes that couldn't function normally anymore and that's where all the inflammation starts. It starts at that membrane with arachidonic acid. So when you have an overabundance of this bad fat, you're going to get increase in inflammation, which creates all sorts of havoc. So yes, a diet that reduces overall inflammation in the body is absolutely essential. And so, you know, and everybody keeps coming up with new diets, right? It drives me crazy. So what's what's the diet that's really been around forever that everybody agrees? Is a good diet the mediterranean diet it's yeah, really probably the one that has the most uh consensus i guess you could say right most consensus because yeah. you know it drives me crazy when an author comes up with a diet one year and then two years later comes up with a completely different diet <laughs> and that, that's the best diet and then another two years comes up with another diet and, and all of a sudden all the other diets are no good what have you been telling everybody that those diets were really good so well, the one that's been very consistent is that mediterranean diet because it's very anti-inflammatory. The olive oils and the vegetables and the fruits and all that kind of stuff and the fish, those are all anti-inflammatory. So they, it really, really helps. Having said that, I can tell you, the first time I wrote about you know, a keto diet mm -hmm. was in 1991. I wrote the chapter on epilepsy in the textbook of natural medicine. It was, uh, I think, I think it was thirty-six thousand words. Uh, it was quite, quite the chapter. And one of the things that I put in there was the ketogenic diet for children with seizures. 
because it right. seemed to stabilize seizures. And so that was my first. And so I have to say that there are patients that do that and it does help them with some of these mitochondrial dysfunctions. Um, it's just hard to keep keep them, but it has helped. So I have to say that from an observational perspective to be very, very uh, open about what I see. So what I see, sure. I have to report. Uh, so I can report that. And I do have to also report that some of my patients that do this intermittent fasting mm-hmm. thing, there's some outcomes with that that are positive that I've seen. And I think it has to do with the migrating motor complex. I think that's what it, it activates. And if you activate that, you, you fix a lot of things. And gut permeability is one of the things you can fix. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And of course, the ketogenic diet's an interesting thing, and it's certainly controversial. You know, some people are all about it and others are not. But it does make sense that a diet like that, even if it's just in the shorter term, it, you're eliminating the sugars almost entirely, right? So that whole glycation thing, the insulin resistance, some of these things improve. We know that intermittent fasting seems to improve inter, uh, insulin resistance as well. So we, we recognize at least some similarities, even though those diets might be different uh, in terms of some of the benefits there. From a supplementation standpoint, point, I talk a lot on my show about what I call my vital five. And it's not totally universal, but it's the closest thing I thought I could come up with as far as a universal uh, supplement regimen that makes sense for just about every adult uh, that is, uh, you know, living here in uh, North America. And that is uh, omega-3s, because the vast majority of us aren't getting enough in our diet. Um probiotics because most of us are being uh, subjected to way too many antibiotics and even if we're not getting antibiotics in our uh, in our uh, you know pharmaceutically we're getting them in our food uh, with glyphosate and so many of these other uh, you know chemicals that are eroding our microbiome and then magnesium which we discussed in some detail last time that we talked is such a critical player in nervous system and and mitochondrial function and then a methyl methylated B vitamins in a good you know solid complex multivitamin that covers all these other little gaps and then the last one is digestive enzymes now those first four we discussed in the last episode that omega-3 probiotics of course the microbiome magnesium methyl B's all of that are really critical um, do, do we know of any link with digestive enzymes uh, and mitochondrial uh, function at all I'm curious I, I don't know if I've seen anything like that no, what we what we know. So if you just go down the the GI track, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, say that you, it's now almost noon my time here. So say that you had breakfast at ten o'clock. So assume mm-hmm. that it's twelve o'clock right now. You had breakfast at ten o'clock. Right. So that's two hours ago. So you two hours ago, uh, you ate. The food went into your stomach. The stomach pH is around two to three. It's a blender. It mixes the food together, secretes this acid pH of two to three. You could put a hole in my hand. And so that breaks down proteins and also kills microorganisms. That's why it's there. And then it also makes intrinsic factor, which allows you to absorb B12. That food then goes, the bolus of food goes into the duodenum where enzymes are secreted mm-hmm. from the pancreas. Albumylases, proteases, lipases. Food continues to digest, break down. And then bile, the gallbladder squeezes, the liver pushes, mixes bile in there so the fats can be emulsified, so you can absorb fats. Just like if I have an oil stain on my shirt, I can't get rid of the water, I need soap. Then, now it's 12 o'clock. So that's two hours from the stomach to the end of the duodenum is two hours. Now it's going to enter the major part of my small intestine. Mm-hmm. And what has to kick in now is the vacuum cleaner. What I call the migrate, what's called the migrating motor complex, I call it the vacuum cleaner. The vacuum cleaner is going to suck up the bacteria in the jejunum and the ileum, and it's going to throw them into the colon. Now the food's going to enter the major part of my small intestine. There's going to be the continued breakdown of these food particles, the absorption of nutrients into the bloodstream. And after about four hours, what's left is a liquid soup. That liquid soup is going to go into the colon. The colon's pH is seven. The difference between the stomach and the the colon is the stomach is 100,000 times more acidic than the colon. 
The colon's job is to take that soup and pull water out of it. So you hydrate. Mm -hmm. The inability of the colon to take water out is what we call diarrhea. Now, that's proper digestion. Now let's go back. It's two hours, it's 12 o'clock, it's ready to enter this major part of my small intestine. But guess what? The migrating motor complex isn't working. Why? Because I'm eating again. If you eat, it shuts it down. Or there could be a whole bunch of other things that have happened that have created an issue with the migrating motor complex. So now you got bacteria in the small intestine. As food enters the small intestine, bacteria will start munching on it and they will produce gases. Methane and hydrogen are the major gases that these bacteria produce, which we can measure because they're going to get absorbed into the bloodstream and we're going to eliminate them through our lungs. And then if there's iron in there, they're going to eat that iron up and you're never going to absorb it. So you can give them all the iron you want, they, they're going to eat it all. And so this is why you have low ferritin levels with a whole bunch of people. And this is why they create bloating gases and all sorts of things. And this is what can create leaky gut as well. So the migrating motor complex is dysfunctional. And that's what can create tons of problems. And so this is where I think intermittent fasting may be having the effects that it has because it gives a, a big break of time between meals so that those bacteria can't get any food and they might be migrating back to the colon. So that's a big, so I, I work on that aspect with my patients. Because that's what IBS is. So if you have a lot of methane gas, guess what? You're going to get constipation. If you have a lot of hydrogen gas, you're going to get diarrhea. If you have both hydrogen and methane, you're going to get both diarrhea and constipation. Guess what? There, there's your IBS right there. And so mm. is this these bacteria located in the wrong place at the wrong time? Is that what IBS really is? You know, sometimes they refer to this as SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Right but it's really a mislocation of bacteria that aren't moving down into the colon. And so always the philosophy of medicine should always be that the doctor who thinks they know it all knows nothing. So 25 years ago, I was recommending people eat every two hours. I didn't know anything <laughs> because I was giving them the wrong recommendation. Yeah. Because you need this break in between meals for the migrating motor complex to do its thing. And so I call it the vacuum cleaner because everybody understands the vacuum cleaner what it does. But it is really important. So for my so so that's what we might missing. So so digestive enzymes, although very helpful, because I think it gives the pancreas some rest period to recover. Mm -hmm. I think that's how, how they work. But if you have this, it's irrelevant because this could be the causative factor. So how do you fix that? Well, you need prokinetics, things that can stimulate the vacuum cleaner like enteric coated peppermint oil. That's why enteric coated peppermint oil is so successful. It works. And the key to it is really a how you recommend it. Because what enteric coating means, as you know, but your audience will probably not, maybe not know this, maybe some of them will, is that enteric coating means that it will not break down in an acid environment. It will only break down in an alkaline environment. So you take the capsules, they will bypass your stomach, get released into the small intestine, and it's going to scare the heck out of those bacteria, and they're going to run for cover into the colon. Now, if your stomach pH is alkaline, it's five or six, it's going to break down in the stomach and you're going to burp it up and then it's not going to work. So you have to find the sweet spot. And so one of the things I also share with my patients is the pHs of the gut start at two to three in the stomach, five to six in the small intestine, and then seven in the colon. The reason why you have that is for specific reasons. The more down you get down the, this path and the more bacteria you find. In the stomach, you have no bacteria because this, the acid kills them all. Mm -hmm. But in the colon, you have trillions because of the So imagine when you switch and you change the pH levels, you're going to mess everything up. No wonder when patients are on proton pump inhibitors or these antacids, all sorts of issues result because of it. So here's, you know, so there's another angle or another observation that's pretty important to understand. So we've never understood the mic. There's physicians here that I've, you know, I've been teaching doctors here 
about the migrating water complex they never even realized that it existed yeah that's really fascinating i took a lot a lot of notes <laughs> while you were talking about it. i'm going to dig more into that as well so then from in terms of recommendations for intermittent fasting and 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 i want to tell everybody listening too um i'm going to do a follow-up episode on my own uh to uh sort of uh, break this down into hopefully uh, easily digestible chunks, I'll say, uh, that you can utilize because there's a lot of information here coming out of uh, Dr. Morello's mouth, and I want to make sure everybody understands it and can utilize it. So then the question I have at this point is intermittent fasting, of course, we have, you know, there's a bunch of different uh, recommendations. We'll have, uh, you know, a 12-hour uh, window, a 14-hour window, a 16-hour window. There's all these uh, where we don't eat and a shorter feeding window. But uh, short of intermittent fasting, you know, you said I was recommending people at every couple hours, and I I used to recommend that as well uh, because that was at one point, I think that was kind of the prevailing wisdom, right? And now it's not. We recognize there's some advantages to giving these breaks. How long do you think people should have as a minimum in between meals if they're not intermittent fasting? Five to six hours. Okay. All right. Yeah, so see then, how fast I, I answered that question because it comes up all the time. So. Yeah. So so if you are intermittent fasting, most people are eating twice when they intermittent fast. Some people eat three times. But if they're eating twice, then basically what you're saying is a meal at the beginning of the window and a meal towards the end of the window, essentially yep. with at least five or six in between. Yep. Yeah. And you need that six hours. Fasting, yeah. Five or six in between breakfast and lunch, yeah. lunch and dinner. It's it's the time it takes for the food to get to the colon, right? So, okay. And and the other thing to remember always is that we're feeding two entities when we eat. We're feeding our own physiology and we're feeding the microbiome. And I don't know if I told you this last time. I I, I can't remember. Anyways, um, there's a study called the Burkina Faso study. And so the Burkina Faso study analyzed children in this area called Burkina Faso. It's, a, it's an area in Africa. And then they studied children in Western Europe. And both of these groups of children had not taken antibiotics for five years. So you can't be in the study if you had taken an antibiotic within five years. So no, no antibiotics for five years. Then they analyzed their microbiomes and they analyzed the levels of short-chain fatty acids in the colon. Acids like butyric acid, which is pretty mm -hmm. important acid. And what they found was that the Burkina Faso children in Africa had far superior microbiomes. What does that mean? They had a lot of really good bacteria and they had very little pathogenic bacteria, mm -hmm. some of the bad bugs, and they had very good levels, high levels of short chain fatty acids. How is that possible? What was the difference? The difference was the children in Burkina Faso were consuming a lot of tubers vegetables that had a lot of fiber in them. Those mm -hmm. fibers and the variety of those fibers were feeding the microbiome and bacteria love growing on this. The children in Western Europe, on the other hand, were consuming high levels of refined carbohydrates, which were getting absorbed in the upper gastric tract, not the lower gut. So they were not feeding bacteria. And I'm assuming that the lack of feeding these bacteria enhances pathogenic bacteria to multiply yeah, because the good bacteria keep the bad bacteria in check. And so this was a really fascinating look at how do we improve the microbiome? Well, you improve it by feeding the food because you're feeding two systems. You're not feeding only one. It's not just about you. It's also about them, these bacteria. So it's a different... You know, it, it's a really interesting mindset to think like that way. And and Jerry, you know, one of the things you can you, you can you can see here is think about all the benefits of fiber, right? But here here's the point: fiber never gets into the blood. It always stays on the outside. So how in the heck does fiber do all this stuff? <laughs> it never gets mm -hmm. into our blood. It's because of what the bacteria do with it. And right. and also remember this: one other thing here is that the the gut is not an internal system. It's an external system, right? which is really kind of interesting mindset as well because we think, well, it looks like it's inside, but it's not inside. And so that's really some really fascinating little data that, that really we have to think about, again, because it's going to relate to the, to the mitochondria as well. So this microbiome-mitochondria connection is, is very, very big. I think we're going to see some big things um, 
in the, in the future on it. It sounds like it. And, and it, it's like we talked about last time, both the mitochondria and the microbiome are these areas of study that are endless, right? We just dig deeper and deeper and deeper. <laughs> Look, and learn think more, about more it. And more okay. Good, Jared. Shit, man. We, we just, oops, I've said a bad word. <laughs> we just, no worries. We just started. We can go on another two hours. Like yeah, yeah. We, we haven't even got to all your questions. I, 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 I guaranteed. <laughs> guaranteed. Yes. And, and we do have about five minutes left and I definitely want to respect your time. So let me ask you this. So we are talking, we, we, we got into leaky gut initially, talked a little bit about it last time, a little bit about it this time. You mentioned PEA last time. We got into that in some detail. We've talked about anti-inflammatory foods we've talked about prebiotic fiber uh what are there other things that you're recommending one thing that's been commonly utilized is l-glutamine the amino acid uh what what are you recommending for people that want to repair their gut well i think you know first of all the burkina faso study kind of tells you a little bit i think yeah. to repairing the gut you need this migrating motor complex to be active because if it's not you're going to make a mess there uh you're going to get inhibition of the absorption of nutrients. That's a big, big problem. So you have to fix that. So that's one. Two, one of the things that you need to do, and there's no question about this, is how do you increase the butyric acid levels in the colon? Because if you look at butyric acid and you look at the effects it has, it's essential to maintain the integrity of that one cell lining everything points to it so you have to increase the levels of butyric acid so that's an important component there and how do we do For, that well <laughs> one of the things that tributyrin is something that you can take it's another supplement okay uh, that's out there uh, because butyric acid orally will get destroyed by stomach acid so if you look at all the butyric acid studies they're doing rectal insufflation of butyric acid no, nobody's going to do that so you right. try to take these butyric acids that can get to the colon so this is one of the ways of doing it another way of doing it is to make sure that you're taking enough foods fibers that the bacteria can consume and create butyric acid like you know pgx right. is one of the popular fibers you're familiar with mm -hmm. so so that's important and then if you look at the data and the studies you'll see that this is one of the first studies that I've ever seen in this arena is, is PEA, palmitto phenylamide. I was just in Italy two weeks ago. Uh, I, I wanted to see Epitech. Epitech is the producer of PEA. They've been doing it for 20 years. And they're the ones that supplied the FDA with the product that they're doing the study on PEA for the treatment of COVID-19. Um, which is fascinating that this ingredient can do all these different things because it works on the endocannabinoid system. It's, mm -hmm. it's a fascinating molecule. And so that molecule showed reduction of gut permeability. And then probably one of the most important things in the gut permeability outside of the migrating motor complex that I talked that we talked about in the butyric mm -hmm. acid is really reducing stress levels that you can do. And you, and you know, some of the supplements, I, I'm a big proponent of pharmagaba, I'm a big proponent of rhodiola rosea taken in the morning on an empty stomach as a as a very good compound that can reduce your interpretation of stress. Yeah. And I think that is that has some valuable applications. And then you have all sorts of other things that uh, you know uh, you've been utilizing and sharing with your with your customers, consumers for a long, long time. But those are all things that I think will help gut permeability. Because um, we need gut permeability, but it's just it's just out of control. You know, I don't know. I, th I think I told you this last time. It's like a house with a roof on it full of holes right, and the water right. comes in. I mean, that's that's, what, that's what's going on. And you're you're going down a, a, a bad road. And, and think about this, uh, Jer. Think about all the people that you know that have serious gut issues like Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, they're really in bad shape. Yeah. I mean, they really get sick, uh, really, really sick. That's how important the gut is. And I think a lot of things are starting there. So, All right. Anyways. Well, I, 
I know we, we've run up against the time, so just to finish up this conversation, it sounds like to me we're really looking at two basic um, critical components to all this. We've got to look at stress and all the impactors of stress and how to mitigate those things. We've got to supplement the things that we're not getting in our diet to reduce inflammation and to support the body, and we've got to fix the leaky gut. So for everybody listening, I'm going to get into detail on all of those things, uh, learn, taking from the two hours I've spent with Dr. Morello, and we're going to do that on the next episode of Vitality Radio. Dr. Morello, I know you need to go. Thank you so much for your time. I know it's valuable, and I appreciate it so much. Always fun to talk to you. <laughs> you take care. All right, Bye for you now. Too. Bye-bye. You All right, so that was Dr. Gaetano Morello uh, from Canada. This guy, I'm telling you, I could talk to him for the rest of my life. I don't think I'd get bored. I hope you feel the same way. What I recognized after I discussed with him mitochondria back in episode 379 was very simple, and that is that we had opened up this Pandora's box, uh, but uh, like a good, in a good way, of all this beautiful, incredible information, but potentially very overwhelming inf- information. And of course, overwhelm is a big factor in stress. So we don't want to overwhelm you here at Vitality Radio. That is never my goal. Next episode of Vitality Radio, four days from now, should be. Um, and I'm actually going to, uh, to start writing that episode right now uh, while my notes are here and while everything's fresh in my mind. I will give you a roadmap to mitochondrial um, uh, support and a way to get on top of that mitochondrial support. It's going to be it deep. There's going to be a lot of information there, but I'm going to try and put it out in the best kind of roadmap as I possibly can, kind of step one, step two, step three sort of thing. And I'm going to tell you what, I have been making significant improvements myself to my own health, and I've been focusing on mitochondria in ways that I never had before. Uh, Even prior to talking to Dr. Morello, I had been using some products specifically focused on mitochondria because I had recognized that there were some things that I was likely missing in that department. Now, what's crazy and what's so beautiful about the the job I get to do for a living every day uh, is that I get to speak with guys like Dr. Morello to clue me in on things that I just didn't understand before. And as much as I would love to tell you that I've got it all figured out, Dr. Morello and I both agree that once you think you know everything, you don't know anything. I am with you learning this information myself, and some of this is brand new to me. And as I'm learning it, I'm applying it. And I was just having a conversation with my fiance, Jen, uh, yesterday, I think it was, where we were talking about just, you know, kind of how do we feel? How are we doing from a health standpoint? Um, We are both now officially in our 50s. She's 50. I'm 51. Uh, And we are recognizing that uh, age plays a major role in how you feel if you allow it to. And I was telling her that with a lot of the things that I've been doing recently, I feel better than I have in a long time. From an energy standpoint, I don't feel as fatigued as I once was. I feel more mentally sharp than I once did. And things are really improving. It's been a really, really cool thing to see. And there's been some diet changes. There's been some uh, lifestyle changes, some additions and some subtractions in that area. And there have been some supplement changes. So on the next episode, I'll explain some of the things that I personally am doing that I believe are helping me. I'll also talk about some of the things that I'm doing to work with some of the people who've been injured uh, via the COVID-19 jabs and what we're seeing uh, benefit there because we are addressing mitochondria and leaky gut in those people for sure. And I'll talk about just generally what you can do to improve your health. And uh, it's, again, a lot of information, but the goal is not to overwhelm, but to inform and educate and to give it to you in kind of step-by-step processes. We are doing some really cool stuff here at Vitality Radio and Vitality Nutrition over the next little bit. In another week, uh, I'll be recording with Dr. Uh, Actually, tomorrow I'm recording with Dr. Cabral, Stephen Cabral. But he, uh, if you're familiar with him, you already know it's going to be a great interview. If you're not familiar with him, Stay tuned. It's going to be a great interview. I'm really excited about that. We're going to talk a lot about detoxification because toxicity plays a major role in all of this stuff. And we're just going to continue to bring you more and more real world 
applicable information that you can use for yourself, for your families to improve your health. That's what's coming up next over the next few weeks and months on Vitality Radio. I'm going to go ahead and sign off for now. If you have questions, call us 801-292-6662. That's 801-292-6662. Or you can jump online, vitalitynutrition.com. I'd love to have you either way. Or heck, if you live locally, Come on, see us, 107 South, 500 West, in Bountiful, Vitality Nutrition. We'd love to help you. I'd love to introduce myself to you, and I would love to do anything I can to help you on your vitality journey. I'm Jared St. Clair, and this has been Vitality Radio. You've been listening to the Vitality Radio Podcast. Enjoy your week. In the meantime, Jared will be feverishly searching for the latest nutrition info to educate you on and wading into mounds of propaganda to help steer you through it. Vitality Radio is researched and written by Jared St. Clair. Our awesome music is by Brian Bob Young. Support Vitality Radio by subscribing and giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or your favorite podcast source. Don't forget to follow us at Vitality Radio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please let us know your thoughts about this episode by using the hashtag Vitality Radio Podcast. And if you like what you hear, go tell somebody with a share, a screenshot, or an airdrop. Thank you.